freedom isn't being carefree. Right. I think freedom requires a kind of discipline. Meet Sherry Mandel, award-winning author, mother, and activist best known as the mother of Kobe Mandel and founder of the Kobe Mandel Foundation, which was named after her son, who was tragically killed by terrorists in May 2001. Sherry Mandel wrote The Blessing of a Broken Heart, which won the National Book Award in the Contemporary Jewish Life category. In her latest book, The Road to Resilience, From Chaos to Celebration, she explores the seven spiritual steps of resilience that teach us how not only to survive, but how to thrive in the face of grief, loss, and trauma. Sherry currently lectures around the world about grief and resilience and shares the powerful lessons she learned from pain and loss. Resilience is not an attitude, but a process. It can help us gain strength to become our fullest and deepest selves as a result of adversity. It reshapes us and enlarges rather than diminishes us. Hi, I'm Rifka. And I'm Ida. Welcome to the From the Inside Out podcast. We're entrepreneurs and friends who love connecting through meaningful conversations. Our goal is to bring you insights, wisdom from the people who inspire us, and interviews with some of our world's greatest thinkers, leaders, and everyday heroes. We invite you to join us as we create positive change in mind, body, and soul from the inside out. Welcome back to From the Inside Out. Welcome back, Um, everybody. This conversation is about resilience. From the lens of a mother who suffered an unimaginable tragedy and loss in her lifetime, and some of the powerful lessons that she learned that helped her not only survive, but thrive in the face of tragedy. And one thing we've learned from interviewing people from all walks of life is that no matter what you're going through or dealing with, what struggle you are facing or have faced in the past, we're all dealing with or have dealt with something, and there's so much that we can learn from each other in these types of conversations. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about um, Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. We hadn't been through the Holocaust, but he wrote a book so that we can apply the teaching, the things that he learned through his experience in our own everyday life through our struggles. And I feel like Sherry Mandel is doing the same thing. This conversation was, was deep. It was beautiful. Um, it was meaningful. And we very much look forward to bringing it to you. We turn to Sherry for guidance and how can we find freedom and joy in our lives? And how can we help others do the same and show up for them when they might need support? That was one of the beautiful things that Sherry shares and that helped Sherry kindness. She had people that were there for her and it became natural to her to want to give back. The experience that she had been through the loss of her son is something we we all witnessed. It was a huge deal in Israel and in the world and it's hard to forget. And the truth is we should never forget. We should remember the stories of our fellow Jews. It's a way for us to be there for one another, to stand up for for one another by digging deeper into our people's real life painful stories today and the stories of our history, including Yitzhak Mitzrayim, that we're going into now, Pesach. Sherry shared in her book the importance of remembrance. She quoted the Baal Shem Tov, who said, Forgetfulness leads to exile, while remembrance is the secret of redemption. It's a real honor, and I'm truly grateful to have the opportunity, also in light of the tragedies that have transpired now in Israel, to have this opportunity to share this conversation we had together with Sherry, a story of pain through loss of her beloved son, Kirby, and the resilience, love, kindness, and soulfulness she has found that we are able to share with you is something we can all take to heart. And it's something Sherry actually lives with every day. But it was very meaningful to have the opportunity to talk to her and hear about her pain and also the beauty in her life. Before we begin, we have received some beautiful, meaningful reviews, and I just wanted to share one. Thank you for sharing your feedback. We received them in emails at Rifka and Ida at gmail.com, R-I-V-K-A-H and Ida at gmail.com. And you can also, we've seen some lately some beautiful ones on um, Apple. You can write a review and we love seeing them. And um, thank you. Thank you for the beautiful feedback. So we have one from all the way in Perth, Australia. Hi, Rifka and Ida. 
I listened to your podcast from the inside out and just finished listening to the latest episode on clarity, which is episode 45. It's a conversation between Ida and I. I just had to reach out to you to say it was the perfect episode for the exact point in my life. I had a terrible day at work the day before and was feeling really upset about it and unsure what the best way forward was. Just by taking the time out to listen to you and Ida reflect on the topic of clarity, the words of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, etc., I walked away feeling lighter and with peace in my soul. I have now found the clarity on how I want to move forward regarding the work issue, and I thank you both for it. Thank you. Thank you for that. We hope you find this conversation right now as meaningful as we did. Thank you so much for being here with us. Ida and I were both profoundly impacted by your story and the lessons you've learned about faith and resilience on the path toward healing, and we've learned so much from you. Would you be able to share some of your background with us and introduce yourself to our listeners who are not yet familiar with you? Okay, well, my name is Sherry Mandel. Um, I grew up on Long Island. I um, went to public high school. Um, every Where I grew up, my, in my elementary school, everybody was Jewish, but it was a public school. So we sang Christmas songs and... Everybody else went to Hebrew school. Almost everybody went in the afternoons, but I didn't go. So I had no Jewish education. Um, I went to college. I went to Cornell, and then I got a master's in creative writing at Colorado State. And I was just like very your typical American and didn't really connect to anything Jewish at all. But eventually I felt something was missing because... Um, was teaching college and we read a story. I think it was by Shirley Jackson. It mentioned Hanukkah and I realized I couldn't really explain the whole story of Hanukkah. Like I didn't, I didn't really know it. And then I went on, um, I was traveling and I lived in Spain I visited Morocco and then I came to Israel. And once I came to Israel, um, Things like started to click for me Jewishly because I started to learn. And once I started learning about Judaism, I was really in shock because it was so interesting, you know, the Torah and the way that um, the Torah was learned in Hevruta and pairs. And also that I had no idea that Judaism had so much to say about the world to come and the soul. and. Also, I started learning Hebrew, and I was astounded by the richness of the language and how it's so associative. And also just all the talk about the soul, because I was always sort of a non-materialistic person, because that's kind of my nature. It's just I don't notice material things as much as other people. So I was always looking for meaning. and. At first, I found it in feminism. I worked on a lot of feminist projects. I worked on this big art project that was called the Dinner Party Project. It was a feminist retelling, actually, of the Bible, <laughs> part of it, of the creation story. So I think I would say I was always a searcher, but I had no idea that I would find what I was looking for in Judaism. So at what age did this take place? Were you married yet or were you still single? How old were you when all of this took place? When I came to Israel for the first time, I was, I think, 27 or 28, and I wasn't married. Um, I started to learn a little, and then I met my husband. And he was like me because he grew up also very secular. And in fact, he grew up in a small town in Connecticut, and there weren't very many Jewish people in his town. So he became religious and I met him when he had been unmarried, like a Shiva guy for, and he, for five years he was dating and he, he was already 33 or 34 when I met him. So he was kind of ready to stop being religious and <laughs> I was kind of ready to start being religious. But in, in order to marry him, he told me I had to keep kosher and keep Shabbos. Like he sort of made this contract with me, but we were in Israel. So, and in, and in Jerusalem, so Shabbos wasn't such a big deal because everything was closed. 
And also keeping kosher in Jerusalem wasn't so hard. But um, he hadn't told me about the holidays. I didn't realize how hard the holidays would be just starting out. Because after we were married, it was a three-day Rosh Hashanah, like Shabbos and two days of Rosh Hashanah. And it, it was too much for me. Like I went to the light switch and started turning it up. <laughs> I couldn't take it. It was like, oh, my God, what did I sign up for here? And, and when did it become meaningful and special to you? I think it was meaningful and special right away. But it was just, I went from being totally secular. Right. It was a transition, a tough transition. Right. Yeah, I didn't really have a transition. Right. Um, but, you know, once I had kids, once we had children, and then also, of course, <clears throat> you know, I suffered a terrible tragedy, our family. So my our son Kobe was murdered when he was 13 in 2001. He was murdered by terrorists. So after that, it wasn't, you know, like Judaism, everything around me was a life and death matter because we needed to survive. And I feel like Judaism kind of became a lifeline. And the people in my community became a lifeline. And also the Torah became a lifeline and Jewish mysticism became a lifeline. So I think once it became so earnest, like such a burning need to have not answers, but like to have a place where the same questions were being asked. For example, um, somebody I knew in Tekoa, she she's Israeli, she came over to me a week after, a few weeks after the murder, and she came to learn with me, to heal him. And I was so not one of those, like, you know, Psalms, like, I just not been one of those ladies who read Psalms, like, it just was not my thing. And then we started learning together, and all of a sudden, I saw that this was our story too, because stories about suffering and redemption and healing and constriction and expansion. And it also, the language had a purity. And after Kobe was killed, he, I, I even suffered from language because I couldn't stand what people, they didn't talk about something either about, well, at the Shiva, we put up a sign that said, you know, we only want to talk about Kobe or, or words of Torah. And I think I felt like that for at least a year afterwards, that I needed, I needed to be saved, like, you know, and I, I had to talk about things that were serious and that mattered and that had that same life and death frequency. And I think that's part of the problems with mourning, that it kind of, can, especially when it's a tragedy, that it can take you out of the world. I, I was almost in the world to come. I feel like many of us don't understand or don't really recognize the role of prayer, the role of God, meaning and purpose and spirituality in our lives until things get hard or we experience you know, loss or failure and I think tragedy forces us to reconcile that we have to look to a higher power or at least start paying attention to things that maybe we didn't pay attention to before, like the value of Psalms of prayer and, and how important it is to have a community of friends who can support us and be there for us when things are not easy. And when you mentioned language, something stood out to me, you know, we don't, have the right words to describe our emotions. And we'll usually use these big words like anger or frustration when there's so many different words that we can use to describe how we're feeling on the inside, but we simply don't have the vocabulary. And we also don't have the definitions. We don't really know what these words really mean. One word that comes to mind is resilience. But specifically, you talk about Jewish resilience. Can you share uh, what does Jewish resilience mean and how does it compare to the conventional kind of psychological view of resilience? Yeah, I think, resi well, first of all, 
even after I wrote the book, The Road to Resilience, uh, I've st- I'm still learning more about resilience. And actually, <clears throat> the word for resilience in Hebrew is hosen. And it's mentioned in the Torah, actually, I think in Nishayahu, it's used as a synonym for faith. That resilience is really faith. And in my book, I talk about resilience as a kind of enlargement. That usually people think that a resilient person is somebody who goes back to being who she was, to being the same person. And in Judaism, we never think about being the same person. We're always trying to be better. So my definition of resilience is becoming larger and being enlarged by the experience. Because, for example, my son's murder, I was not a big enough person to contain that. You know, I. The person I was before, there's a kind of shattering that occurs, a shattering of your ego. And if you don't have people who are going to support you and pull you up and keep you going, then you can kind of fall apart. And and there were many times in that, especially in the beginning, I really thought I I couldn't survive this pain. But if you have if you either if you have your own inner resilience or you have people who support you, then you are rebuilt. You know, all those broken pieces come together, but they're not rebuilt into the same, you know, in Hebrew we say clay, like into the same vessel. Like that vessel, you need you need more pieces. <laughs> you need a bigger vessel in order to hold it. And I think you get those pieces, or I did from the support and kindness I got from people in my community, my family, my husband, and and people all over the world. Yeah, like they say, good friends are hard to come by. And I think it's very special when you have people that are there for you. You speak a lot about the essential role of community and healing. And um, I'd love for you to talk about how the community impacted you and helped you heal. Yeah, well, first of all, it wasn't just friends who helped me. There were people who I didn't know or I knew just barely who really came into my life afterwards. But, you know, in the beginning, people were in our house cleaning up, taking care of the kids, making food. And then even as the year progressed, like there was a group of women from Afrat who sent us Shabbos meals every week. And part of it, of course, was the help with like, you know, the food, but part of it was the idea that the, the loss, the tragedy, the, ex, the extent of the stuff of our suffering was recognized and we weren't alone. Um, I spoke to, we spoke to Rabbi Avram Tversky after Kobe was and said not to isolate ourselves, that that would be a very big mistake. So also, I, I did have friends who I was very close to who helped me. And like sometimes I had, I had to go to some weddings, you know, a few months after Kobe was killed. And it was it felt impossible to me. But my friends, they were there with me and they 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 said they were going to be my bodyguards. So they, you know, they protected us. What would you say to someone who wanted to know how they can best help someone who you know is experiencing a painful time in their lives? How how do you help comfort them? What are the right things to do or say? I mean, I'm sure there are many, but I often hear that people will say the wrong thing or say something painful, you know, maybe try to fill in the silence because they don't want things to be awkward and you know, there's so many different stories of people who have done more harm than good, you know, for people who are, who are going through something difficult, how would you advise someone or how would you, you know, walk someone through helping a friend or someone who's going through something? What I noticed was that after Kobe was killed, there were like, we had a lot of neighbors also who helped us. And some of them weren't like language people. So they didn't really say much, but they just came in and, like would just help clean up the house or bring food or just sort of be in the background. And 
I think everybody has something they can give, you know, and that if you haven't experienced loss, that sometimes it's just better to be quiet and not say anything, except maybe, you know, like also people say, like, what can I do to help? That's I used to find that very not helpful because I wasn't going to tell anybody what to right. do. But if if somebody people said to me like I'm a, it's okay if I bring you dinner tonight like if they suggested something specific then it was very helpful. So I think just to suggest something specific and you know it's like that old um, advice about how to talk to people who are mourning not to give advice. And also not to put yourself in the center of things. It's almost like you have to, as somebody who's doing comforting a mourner, I think you have to ask Hashem for help. Because um, like in the davening, we say, you know, we have to open our mouth and say the right thing. And But in this case, it's like, you really don't have to say anything because lots of times the mourner just wants to speak. I mean, during Shiva, the um, the person visiting is not supposed to start the conversation, supposed to remain quiet, and the person visiting is supposed to start conversation. So that probably has something to do with the silence, you know, giving them space. I'm actually curious, what led to your decision to becoming um, a pastoral counselor? I'm wondering if it was because of your experience and you saw what worked for you, what what helped you and what was comforting to you and what wasn't. I wanted you to share with our listeners and with us what that role entails and what tools you found helpful for you and for those that have, that you've been helping. Yeah. Well, first of all, we started an organization called the Kobe Mandel Foundation. Yes. That is, I've heard about it and we read about it and that is just unbelievable. Yeah. What a so contribution already, to the world, to Israel, to people who are, to people who are suffering and in pain. Yeah. Thank you. So we started in 2002 with Camp Colby and also women's healing retreats. And actually, like for the women's healing retreats, we, I, my friends were the staff at first because one of my good friends, Shira Chernobyl, she herself is a pastoral counselor. She was trained in America. Um, there was no such thing as a pastoral counselor in Israel. Like there were rabbis in the hospitals but they were there to talk about questions of kashrut or, you know, medical ethics, but they weren't there to sort of comfort the family or the sick person. And what we saw, what I realized in doing this work in working with families and bereaved children and widows and widowers was that lots of times they go to psychologists and psychology is great, but dealing with loss, it's really a spiritual problem, spiritual issue as well. And that's what pastoral counseling focuses on. It focuses on questions of meaning. So I thought that it would be really important for me to have that training because I was running these women's programs. Also, I wasn't directing the camps, but I was very involved with the camps and talking to families and talking to and so I thought it was important to get the training. And I ended up being in like the second cohort, this, the second group that trained in Israel to be um, pastoral counselors. And I learned a lot because I also worked in the hospital. And a few things I learned were, one thing I learned was that when you're talking to somebody that you can ask them questions like, is it okay if we talk about you know, your illness now? Or what is most important to you now? Because some people want to talk about it, but some people really don't. And it's important to respect what, what that other person wants. Um, another thing I learned is this idea of, it was actually a chaplain. It was actually a, like a priest, I think, who came and gave us a session. And he talked about the burning bush in the story of Moshe, when <clears throat> Moshe saw the burning bush and it, there were other people, there were other shepherds in the area, but they didn't notice it. And he said that 
people have burning bushes in their lives. That means that there are issues that are always blazing in their life. Like, for example, with us, with, you know, Kobe's murder, it's not, there's, there's no such thing as closure. That's another thing I learned that closure is a myth because first of all, there's a soul. So the soul is still alive. And I think that part of why we made the foundation and did so much work is to, to keep that connection to Kobe's soul alive. And so this idea of, of um, like the burning bush means that there is no closure, that it's still blazing, but there's things in everybody's lives and, that are like that. And that the role of the pastoral counselor or even of a friend, first of all, is to know that that's a holy place, that everybody has their Kodesh Kodeshim, everybody has a personal holy of holies. And that, you know, like um, in the holy of holies, you have to take off your shoes. You can't, you, you can't just jump in. You have to prepare and you, you have to touch it carefully. And be aware that what you're treading on is holy ground. You write that brokenness, like you say now, everyone has their pain. And you write that brokenness is the human condition. And that at the moment of pain or suffering or disillusion, rebirth is beginning. Like a seed having to turn to nothing to become something you described. Or if you don't ever enter the darkness, you might never emerge. You had written that. So when someone is in their brokenness... And you say that nothing, you know, it's always, it can, it will always remain there. You know, there's no end, necessarily end to it. Um, but there is a way to heal in some way. What is the catalyst for growth? Like, what are the tools that stand out to you in the process of moving through darkness towards wholeness? Yeah, that's a good question. Because I think it's different for everybody. Everybody, like in my book, I talk about seven spiritual steps. So. First is chaos, and chaos is that place of total brokenness. And then it's kindness and community. But there's also creativity, that creativity comes in and also becomes a way of healing. And, you know, I just think of like right now, it's spring um, in Israel. Is it spring there too in America? Yeah, yes. <laughs> right. So you see this rebirth and that somehow like all of a sudden, one of my friends pointed out a fig tree where all of a sudden there's there are green leaves there where it was totally bare. They're just sprouting. And so some of it is just life itself has power and just believing in the force of life and recognizing those sparks. Because even in the midst of the worst darkness, there's also sparks of light and, and allowing them to in, be enlarged, I think. But everybody has their own way of doing that. You know, there's like the tools that work for me. I don't know. I don't know if they're going to work for other people because I needed to receive. Like that was my power was that I could receive from people. And so many people helped me. And once I did all that receiving, it was natural to want to give. But there are some people who aren't like that. You know, they're, they don't want to admit their weakness. They want to put on a good face. So for me, the, the ability that I had not to try to be something I wasn't, that really helped me. You know, for my husband, it was something else. He, he went into action right away. He was... Like the first thing he said to me after they told us that Kobe was murdered and I fell to the ground and he looked at me and he said, we have three other children and we are not going to let this destroy their lives. So he was more like deliberate and willful and also action oriented. And I think sometimes couples can be divided if one is action-oriented and one is is like the designated griever but Seth wasn't like that like he he also grieved and it was like shared it I think that also helped that we really carried the grief together 
And when he went on trips, my children were young. And so there was somebody like teenagers, uh, one teenager in the community of Viva, she came and stayed with us at, you know, at night when he went to America. So it was also the support of the community that was a tool, I guess, to help. But, but I think the main thing is just being able to receive help. There's a great book by Adam Grant called Give and Take, which is very much about how to be a, a true giver, you have to be able to fully receive also. And I think that, um, I, I, you know, being someone who's normally on the giving end, it's very hard to receive and feel comfortable with that. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, it's something that over time, you know, you, ha- you had to learn to do, you were going through something and, and you needed the support of the community. And, and it probably helped you become a better giver in the process because they really go hand in hand. Um, you know, there's so many different things that different ways that people move through um, difficult times and, you know, some tools will work for some people and others will work for others. I, I just wonder um, about time, you know, that you wrote time doesn't heal, but kindness can. Um, could you expand on this? Does that have to do with giving? Like, how would you define kindness? at its best? Well, first of all, that I said that because um, we had an episode in camp with a girl. She came to camp and she, we found out she, she wore a watch, but underneath the watch, the counselor saw that she was cutting herself. And so we called her mother and told her that we thought that we should go home, that we weren't like equipped to take care of this girl. And the mother pleaded with us to keep her at camp. And so the counselor was with her all of the time. And um, at the end of camp, the girl got her, she, she felt a little better. I mean, I don't know how long it lasted, but she showed the counselor that under her watch, the scar had healed. But she said to her counselor, time does, and the counselor said, oh, you see, time heals. And the camper said, no, time doesn't heal. Feels. So, I mean, it is true that time can heal because like we have that thing of forgetting, you know, but on the other hand, if something is raw and like <clears throat> jagged inside of you, then it's always going to be there in that place of pain. And I think what we do at camp and also what happened in our lives is that we formed kind of protective memories, that we have the memory of the trauma that is always there and very difficult to deal with. But also like for the kids at Camp Kobe, they know that they suffered something terrible, but they also have these memories of being at camp where people were very kind to them. And they were protected and they were taken care of. And they're they're kind of parallel memories. So that's also a way of of creating hope, I think. Yeah. You you've you actually answered my question. I was gonna ask you how to how does beauty and pain coexist? There's actually a book. Who's the person we want to interview next? She, um, she wrote the book Quiet. Susan Kane. Yes, yeah, Susan Kane. She's come oh, out yeah, with a book in, called um, Bittersweet. Bittersweet. Oh, and uh-huh. her previous book was called Quiet about introverts. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So that. she, yeah. Um, it's it's the whole. Uh, she wrote a whole book about how beauty and pain coexist. But we can we can also we can hear it from you. <laughs> but you just shared some of that. Like there's the pain, and and then the, and then there's the hope. Right. And, and also, for example, that the kids at camp, in the beginning, the camp was only for terror victims, like for the first 15 years. Now it's for kids who have lost a parent or a sibling in other tragedies. But the fact that these kids could be together, and like my daughter was telling me that they used to have very warped, but they would like do a contest for who's the biggest miskin. Who's the most pitiful? Which kid has it the worst? And so the kid who had the worst story, that's the kid who would win, you know? So that's like the the pain becoming the beauty. Like it's all 
Right. It's all uh, transformed. Well, do you but find that, that sometimes you can only see, sometimes it just takes pain to actually see the beauty? Well, I think there are people who see the beauty anyway. Yeah. But when, I think when you've had suffering, you need the beauty. Like, for example, you need to look at the trees and see rebirth. And also, I think you're just altered. You're in, a, you're in an altered state of consciousness and, and awareness. Like, I know even language for me was different that first year. Like, somebody would say, did you close the door? And to me, it was like, oh, did you? It was like to the next world, the door. It wasn't only this door. Right. So it's like there's a, I mean, there's a kind of beauty in that because you you have something unveiled. You know, you see that this world is very close to the next. You know, and what you thought was, like, I thought this world was the only world because I was very satisfied in this world. Like, I felt like, they had everything I needed. And then once Kobe was murdered, it was like, this world is not enough happening right. down here. One thing I've been curious about is, and you talked about it in your book, is the significance or the spiritual significance of birds. And I'm wondering if you could expand on that, talk a little bit about birds and the role they played. What birds mean to you? Well, the first year after Kobe was killed, I had, we had just so many bird experiences. Like a bird knocked into my car when I was driving and it got stuck on the headlight. <laughs> Crazy things. I was in downtown, walking in downtown Jerusalem, a bird fell dead at my feet. Like there, it's dead birds too. It's not just live birds. And um, then I went to Florida that first year because my mother lived there. And I went to visit and I was on the beach and I was thinking, I wonder if Kobe's soul would, you know, come to Florida with me or it stays in Israel. And I took out a sandwich and I was eating it and a bird came and knocked me on the head. Yeah, I read that in your book. <laughs> <laughs> and then like it continued. Even um, there was an article in the New York Times about me at one point and um, they, we went to the cave where Kobe was killed to take the picture. And all these birds came into the cave and were flying around. And the photographer said she had never seen anything like it. Like just crazy things with birds. So I learned with friends. And first of all, a bird is a symbol of the soul because it flies, you know, from this world to the next world. and. Um, it also, there's a, in the Kabbalah, it says that there's a um, Ken Sipur, there's a bird's nest, Lamala, that's like called the supernal bird's nest, Jewish mysticism. And that's like the highest place in the world. And it's where um, the Mashiach waits to redeem the world. And in that bird's nest, it's says that there's pictures of the first and second temple. And then there are pictures of all the children who died, Kiddush Hashem. So when I learned that with my friend, I was, I was really overwhelmed because I felt like it was saying that Kobe's death was part of Jewish history and part of a much bigger story. And that it was connected in some way, you know, with redemption. A lot of birds. Yeah, that's also the beauty. You speak so much about kindness and the people that were there for you in your book. And and it, it's true, birds take care of each other. And you know, there's something you also wrote about birds. Um, well, birds sing, which is so nice. You wake up in the morning and you hear them chirping, they have their they have their song. And I love this quote that you shared, when a man is singing and cannot lift his voice and another comes and sings with him, another who can lift his voice, the first will be able to lift his voice too. That is the secret of the bond between spirits. Yeah, it's really true. It's so much easier to sing with somebody than to sing alone. 
Yeah, and and that you can lift each other up through singing. Yeah, or anything. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I wanted to discuss guilt because you had spoken about this in your book, it, and it's such a big part of our emotional experience, especially among parents who often carry the emotional burden of others' decisions. And you shared what Rabbi Tversky had said about guilt, that eventually we would be able to deal with grief, but if we allow ourselves to be overcome with guilt, that's that that's what would be the thing that would kill us. So we wanted to ask you, how does one overcome guilt? And and, and did you do you oh, feel like you you yeah. um, have achieved that? I don't, you know, Jewish mother. Like, yeah, it's always there. <laughs> I think any mother, and also they say any 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 parent whose child dies, you're gonna feel guilt, no matter what. So I think it's always a kind of struggle. But Rabbi Tversky also helped me because I we asked him. We said, "Are we being punished? Like, did we? What did we do?" And he said. There's nothing bad enough you could have done that would have warranted this. So he kind of helped us right from the start realize that it wasn't because of something we did, you know. But of course, we we feel that way often. There's, you always feel there's something you could have done to prevent it. You know, like maybe we shouldn't have moved to Israel. That's that's where Bitachon comes in. You had said that even when you feel you have no choice, that there is still something you can choose. Mm-hmm. And um, at, yeah, so I, was, I wanted you to expand on that because you you know there wasn't a choice that you had in what happened to Kobe, but you had a choice in how you were going to deal with it. I, I was wondering if that's what you meant. Yeah. Well, first of all. Kobe, you know, went missing at night and in the morning we found out he was dead. And then a few hours later, we were on the way to the funeral and I was totally broken. I had to get dressed. And I went into my closet, to my closet, and I took out a hat to wear. And I picked the hat. And I thought to myself, you are so disgusting to care about what hat you're going to wear. And then I knew right that second, I also thought this is going to save you. You still have still caring about something and choosing it. And I think even those teeny choices we make when we're aware that it's the, like that's the power that God gave us is free choice. That's really how the world is created. Um, So, you know, they also say in the Holocaust, I read a study that the women who chose to take care of themselves actually had higher survival rates. Um, Not that I'm blaming anybody, God forbid, who didn't survive. And not that I'm saying that if you tried to wash your face, you would survive. But that there was something in, there's something in taking care of yourself and choosing to take care of yourself. That's, that's life affirming and maybe even life giving. By you taking care of yourself. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's the, like, cause there's this paradox of the choice, having the power of choice and how you're going to deal with it. So you, you chose some self care and um, taking care of yourself in some way. That's what you chose in this situation. But at the same time, you also shared how God is present in our pain, and that is the key component to resilience. So, like, how do we reconcile the faith in Hashem that we have? I guess the faith in Hashem is what can lead us to get over guilt and also the free choice that we have. It's it's like a paradox. Yeah, I mean, I think you can say, yes, there's the guilt, but there's, there's also the fact that we don't know. You know, we could have stayed in America. Who knows, God forbid, what could happen. It's not, it's it's like we think we have control, but but we really don't have all the control that we hoped for. So, you know, I think that that in a way mitigates against guilt because guilt is also saying, look, I could have controlled this. And, 
in the in the end, none of us have control because we all die and we don't know even know how we're going to die or what that process is going to be. And also we don't know what's, you know, what what's waiting for us in life. And it's not something that we create by, you know, like by choosing our hat. It was more that I saw in that moment that I had the power to because I, I missed cared. those last words. You had the power to. I had the power to survive. I thought I was not going to survive. And when I made that choice, it was like it rang a bell in my brain. Like, you're going to live through this. You may not want to, but you will survive this. So you had tremendous courage sharing your story and helping so many people who were grieving, who you know needed support and needed to hear from someone who had a shared experience. There's a lot of people who I think are afraid of being vulnerable and sharing their painful experiences with others. And, you know, it could be, you know, because they're afraid of judgment or what people might say, or even, you know, not being able to find a shidduch. I mean, there's so many reasons why somebody wouldn't want to share their story, even though it could be so helpful and comforting to others who have shared experiences. What would you say to them? You know, if someone is afraid to share or afraid to, you know, have the courage to speak openly about what they've gone through. Yeah. First of all, for me, I don't think it was courage. I think it's just, it was natural for me because I needed help and I felt most comfortable like being with bereaved people. So I made these retreats because I needed it, you know, and I went to all these shivas because it was where I felt like I most belong. But I think I think also because I'm a writer that I had an avenue of expression that even it's like I did my own narrative therapy without realizing it. So as I was writing that whole first year, more and more events happened and I had to integrate them. And I felt like I was writing a kind of spiritual mystery as the year progressed. But I think everybody has some way of being creative and some way of connecting to other people. Because I, I think that's what is most important is connecting to Hashem, connecting to your family, connecting to nature, connecting to other people, connecting to a project. Because death in a way, and a trauma is a huge, it's not just a disconnection, it's a chasm. And how do you bridge a chasm? So all those little stitches of connection, not that they, they don't, they don't allow you to bridge that chasm, but they bring you a kind of strength so that you can at least look at, look at that chasm and say, I'm, I'm, I'm on safe ground here. Yeah. And I think creativity also involves a certain amount of bitachan and faith um, because, you know, creative people know that, you know, we sometimes experience block like writer's block, you know, it doesn't always come naturally. We kind of have to just tap into it and hope that God will give us the, the creative energies and juices that we need to, you know, to, to do what we do to express ourselves creatively. So it's, it's really beautiful that, you know, you were able to use that, that form of expression in your healing it's really special. Well, actually, in this book, Bittersweet, she speaks about that creat creativity can come from pain. And not necessarily like there's a difference between pain and depression. You know, when it's when it's pain, um, well, depression is is different to pain because when it's pain, that can actually lead to the place of creativity, whereas depression is, is different to that. But that um, yeah, I was wondering. If yeah, depression and sadness are two different things. Yeah. Depression is a lack of desire, whereas sadness, it can motivate you because it's an, an, a lacking and want, you want to fill that. It's you still have desire. I mean, yeah, at, and first, at first, grief does can leave you without desire. Right. But yeah, they're, they're totally different things. And yeah, I'm in a group of writers and we just I just got off the meeting with them. And they were saying, I think that something I wrote was like a little um, twisted or sad or something. I forgot exactly what it was, but I was like, 
I wouldn't be a writer if everything was perfect. Right. You know, like if everything's perfect, there's no reason to write. You could just. Right. That's when the creativity on. comes, when you're longing for something. It's like a longing right. and you just, the creative side comes out. But, you know, you could feel that in your writing. I, I just, I felt so a part of you. You're such a beautiful writer. I, uh, you have a gift and you yeah. could feel what you were saying that you're on this journey and you're writing, trying to put the pieces together and, and see like what you're going to do with this. And, and you could feel the soul, like it was, it's such a soulful, poetic book, your first book, the, the Blessing of a Broken Heart, and you feel the pain and you feel the beauty. And, and I just wanted to thank you for that. Uh, one yeah, of the points, you. and, and your second book is so uplifting, um, The Road to Resilience. You know, you go from, from the book of, of, ha of having as much of an understanding as we can of what you've been through and the beauty that you found in that. And then going to the road to resilience was so empowering. We're both like, before we came onto this interview, we're both like so nervous to speak to you because we feel, we actually, we feel very connected. <laughs> but um, I wanted to tell you that, that one of the points that resonated with both of us was how painful experience not only can lead to creativity, but they can be the catalyst to create for others what you felt was missing within you which we have done with your, with your foundation. And I think that's a very powerful message. Are there any examples? Well, we know there's a foundation in your life that you can share where you felt this void and then you used it in your um, creatively. You, used, you decided, oh, instead of me sitting in my pain, I'm going to actually fill this void and share with others. Yeah, well, all the women's groups that we do are, um, we do two-day retreats for bereaved mothers and widows. And it was because um, one day I met Rena. Kobe was killed with Yosef Dijon. And Rena is Yosef's mother. And she lives in Tokoa, where I live. And I saw her one day, the first year, and I asked her how she was. And she said, she's so busy. She just, she needs time for herself. Because she's like a real balabusta. And she was cooking and cleaning and also getting, doing her nursing boards. Also during the Shiva. And she never had time for herself, really. So I said, you know what? But I think maybe we should do a retreat. And I got this idea to do a two-day retreat. And we started in 2002 in May. And since then, we've done, I don't know, maybe 50 retreats, maybe 100. I don't even know. And we've, we mother the mothers. And, and we take care of them. And we started with my friends, with the friends who had helped me. So it was, it was kind of like a natural extension. But I think lots of times people say, you know, there's people who feel that their friends aren't there for them and there's no help. And now it's not so hard because you can just make a group on the internet. You can, you can make a group, you can find a group. And I think for a lot of grief issues that really a group is the best solution because other people who have experienced a similar loss, they may not experience it in the same way, but they're facing the same um, seriousness of situation. We were just talking about this last night. Um, uh, Rabbi Shays Taub has um, a podcast where he shares letters from the Rebbe that the Lubavitch Rebbe wrote to people um, who were seeking his, his, his wisdom and his help. Um, and he wrote that if a person sees a void or a lack, instead of not addressing it, they should become the spiritual, he called it a spiritual trailblazer. Trailblazer or trendsetter. Right. Trendsetter, right. So you, yeah. you do what you feel you need or what you feel is lacking. So I just, it just came up. Um, yeah, and I, I know like that- we were able to do that because, first of all, we were American and we had all the connections. My husband had been a Hillel rabbi, so <clears throat> he had connections with people. And also, I think because I was a feminist and kind of had the power from that, that it was natural for me to think, you know what, I want to do a group for women and I can do it. Because also what happened to me personally was that my fear fell away because I faced something so hard that, like, for example, my Hebrew was terrible at that point. And I still would speak in Hebrew. Like, it just didn't matter. I just did 
whatever I needed to do because I, I had to, I was fighting for my son's memory. Right. How's your Hebrew now? Has, has it gotten better? <laughs> I just wrote an article this week that's going to be in the Jerusalem Post about how bad my accent is and how Israelis make fun of me for having an American accent um, <laughs> and how mean they are about it. <laughs> well, you've contributed so much to Israel with your American blood. So yeah. there you go. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Uh, so we're, Pesach is approaching um, and, uh, you know, Pesach is about um, remembering the past and how we were slaves and we found how we found freedom as a Jewish nation. Um, are there any lessons in the upcoming holiday that you connect to or that you can share? Well, I, I think the idea of community, that community isn't just the people that live with us now around us. It's also from the past, like the, the our, our ancestors and our foremothers and forefathers. And that, you know, Pesach is the holiday when we connect to a miracle of deliverance. I mean, for me, it's a very hard holiday because of the killing of the firstborn, because Kobe was the firstborn. So personally for me, and also I had so many years when Kobe was missing from our table. So, you know, I, I can't say that it's easy for me. And but that idea of freedom, that there's some kind of, you know, that whole idea of going out from Mitzrayim, going out from the narrow straits, and that there's some kind of birth, rebirth that occurs and that that symbolizes the Jewish people. That's beautiful. And when you say that we're, we're connecting to the past generations, Ida was talking about these letters from the Lubavitcher Rebbe that, that is, it's an ongoing thing now till his birthday coming up. Yudalif Nisan, um, there's, we've been doing 30 letters and one of them, the Rebbe was sharing that we have within us that same self-sacrifice as our ancestors did. And sometimes it's not, it, it doesn't show up in our generation today because we don't go through the same challenges as, as the previous generation has. Although, um, some people do. Um, you 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 had been faced with an, an unimaginable challenge, and so your your resilience was activated. But the rebbe was sharing the rebbe was sharing that our resilience is within us too if we choose to tap into that, like it's there and we can activate it. So um, this this reminded me of that that we can tap into that feeling of resilience and freedom from from our past ancestors. Yeah, I think that I think there's a hero or a heroine inside of everybody. And that sometimes, you know, suffering can release that. And but it also joy can release it, you know, or just awareness and being conscientious or caring or kindness. And that to as as a leader and as somebody great, and that that's really also part of our task in this world not not great in terms of like ego but great in terms of i can make a change yeah is is that what freedom like what does freedom mean to you you know i was thinking about it i think freedom is really knowing your tough kid in life and having a tough kid that's connected to something you know to god and to community and to your family and having that clarity because then you do have a kind of freedom because you're not, you're not always struggling with, with questions of identity. Right. It's a journey. It's, it's sometimes it's hard to know, you know, what we're here for, but as long as we're moving forward and trusting well, that's beautiful. process. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I relate to that. I think it's also being able to use your talent, like your specialness, like every single person has something special. So when you can use what's special in you to meet the lack in the world, then yeah, you it's what Rabbi Sachs said. It's like you have that connection. And sometimes it's a process, you know, we evolve sometimes, some people find it, find it later in life, some people earlier. 
Um, we have to trust the timing. Because you, you hear the word freedom and you think, oh, I'm meant to be free of problems that, you know, I'm meant to be just don't have to answer to anybody. I can just do what I want to do. And that, that would define, that's how you would define freedom. But uh, I think, yeah. we, you know, it's just, it's just not yeah. realistic and we have to find a deeper meaning into what right. freedom. freedom freedom isn't being carefree. I think freedom requires a kind of discipline. And I, I know once I got married, for example, I felt like because I had that connection that I had a kind of freedom, which sounds ironic, but I felt like now I can sort of start my life in, in, in like a more defined way. Right. That's amazing because that sometimes someone could feel the opposite. I'm getting married right. and now well, I'm I not free. Feel, I, yeah, I felt the opposite also. <laughs> <laughs> but that's maybe why we also love birds because they fly and there's a certain freedom in that. They, they look they look free. <laughs> and we have to remind ourselves, I guess, through these birds, what, what freedom really does mean. It's like you say, community, being a leader, um, tapping into, into the meaning of life and our purpose. Right. And, you know, Israel is on the route for the migration of birds. Half, like half a billion, like 500 million birds fly over Israel every winter. I didn't Maybe know 500. Like, yeah, like we are on the route. We trust you because you've done your research on birds. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the exact number, but uh, because I'm a grandmother now, I feel like that gives a certain freedom or it feels like freedom because first of all, playing with the, with the grandchildren is like a certain kind of delight that I had no idea. existed. And also having grandchildren is a freedom because you see the continuity and that there's something that these God will continue after you. So there's some kind of, for me, hakala, like um, relief. And I think especially because of losing my son, that bringing in the grandchildren somehow, it also grounds me in a different way. That's yeah. so beautiful to hear. <laughs> We're going to look forward. <laughs> Inspired by you. You're too yeah, you guys, you guys look like you're just getting married. <laughs> well, she has two married children. And so she's. I know, I don't believe with... it. Um, do, do you have a, uh, do you have a prayer, specific prayer or prayers that you turn to uh, for healing? You know what? I think it's Modéani. I think that that's the prayer that I connect to most is just to wake up and thank God for restoring our souls. And also, and thinking in the morning, like appreciating, like I try to think in the morning about what's good in my life and to just appreciate it. And somehow, I think that helps me in life because I read somewhere, one of the rabbis said, it's like the way you start your day can determine the rest of the day, like a prototype. So um, I think that's the prayer that really connects. connects. And, you know, you had written something so special that Mada Ani and the prayers that we say, thousands of people have said them before us and a generation of people after, I mean, the generations before us have said those words. We, so many people are saying them now and in the future, so many people are, are saying these same words, thanking God for the blessings that we have. Right. It's pretty amazing how psychology is catching up with Torah um, on the power of gratitude and, you know, saying Moda'ani in the morning, sharing what we're grateful for and the impact it can have in our lives and even developing, you know, healthy habits, doing one thing in the morning that is productive. You know, something as simple as drinking a glass of water can really, you know, set your day um, on a good path, on a, on, a, on a productive path where, you know, you feel like you're making a difference, even though you're doing something very small, you know, over time, one thing leads to another. Like mitzvah, right. or mitzvah, I guess, would be the equivalent. You do one good thing, it leads to another. 
Um, but I also want to add to that is that when we create positive energy down here and, and joy, that manifests above to God. He, he receives that joy and then he brings it back down to us even more. Yeah. Please, God. Please, Please God. God. That's what I wish for you <laughs> and for all of us and for all our listeners yes. listening. And, and it should just spread to everyone. The joy should spread. Yes. Amen. Amen. And well, we, we always end with a quote or a parting message, something that resonates with you that we know will resonate with us. Um, well, I think, you know, the Rebbe of Cuts said, there's nothing so whole as a broken heart. And, you know, that's very hard to understand, but it really does create a situation where you can, you know, a person can see beyond this world to a wholeness that exists beyond that's, that's not possible in the ordinary every day. Thank you so much. We want to wish you a beautiful Pesach, Pesach and, and enjoy your beautiful grandchildren. May we all experience the wholeness of God in the world and, and see the beauty in, uh, in everything. And really appreciate your, your time. Thank you so much. With the coming Thank of Mashiach. Yeah. Thank you. Your Kobe once more. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Thank you.